Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. So we continue this morning our series in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, can be found on page 1035 and 1036 in your pew Bible. Now, I just want to give you a heads up. Um, so there, there's a lot going on in this text, right? So we're probably going to be here till like 2.30. Uh, and then I'm told there's an emergency deacons meeting that's going to go like probably four hours so all deacons, Jeff Voss, I'm so sorry, because I think there might have been a game you wanted to see today. Uh, I'm just spitballing here, but it's all right, brother. The Lord knows, and uh, you'll have a special place in heaven. I'm kidding. Uh, we'll be out in time because I want to watch the game too. So Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Luke, writing for us, says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. May God add His blessing to the reading of His word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now... Uh, we pause and we think not just about the, the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Father, we pause this morning to think about the ways in which Satan uses the exact same ploys against us. And Father, when we think about that, we are first moved to confession and repentance because we fall prey to it. But we're also driven to worship and to praise. Because where we fail, your son is perfect. May we see more of him this morning. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. From the very opening verses of this gospel, we've been told that Jesus is Savior. And this is really good news, since it's painfully obvious that our world needs saving. The fact that I have just said this out loud feels rather ridiculous because it's just that painfully obvious. The world we live in is broken. It needs not just to be fixed. It needs to be saved. Well, where the message of Christianity differs from others 
is to the nature of the salvation that God offers us through His Son, Jesus. The salvation that we require is not about technological advancement or philosophical enlightenment. No, we need a Savior. We need one who can succeed where everyone else has, is, and will ultimately fail. Now, if you look in your bulletin this morning to page 5, you'll see an outline for our time together, and there you'll see the big idea in one sentence, hopefully what the sermon is about, and here it is. Jesus succeeds as the second Adam, where the first Adam failed. Jesus succeeds as the second Adam, where the first Adam failed. Three points we're going to make this morning. But before we do that, I want to just uh, note, I want to kind of peel the curtain back a little bit and let you know everything that could go into a sermon doesn't go into a sermon. And that's kind of the difference. One of the differences between a sermon and a Bible study is that in a Bible study, you can chase rabbits. And generally speaking, the more rabbits there are to chase, the better the Bible study is. Uh, so this morning, for example, in our study in Jeremiah during Sunday school, there were some wonderful rabbits that we got to chase related to the message that Jeremiah has, not just for Judah, but also for us. But a sermon is different. A sermon is kind of like a speech. If you stand up in a speech and try to say everything about something, you're going to say nothing. And so you have to pick and choose. Well, I want you to know I want to just give you a glimpse of something that didn't get chosen in the sermon this morning. I'm choosing to look at Luke chapter 4 and focus on the fact that Jesus is the second Adam. But scholars will also point out, rightfully so, that in this text, Jesus is also pictured as the new Israel. He's led into the wilderness, just like Israel was. It's for 40 days, not for 40 years, but 40 is there. And the text that Jesus quotes back to Satan as he is tempted all come from the book of Deuteronomy. In other words, it's the record of the words that God gave to his people through Moses as they were finally about to enter into the promised land. So there's two themes, there's two motifs going. We have Jesus as the new Israel, and we have Jesus as the second Adam. Now, if I try to talk about both of those, we really would be here until 2.30. And I'm not. We're going to focus instead on Jesus as the second Adam. So what can we say? First, we need to grasp an uncomfortable truth. We need to grasp an uncomfortable truth. I'm not talking about climate change, regardless of what you may or may not think about that particular phenomenon. No, the uncomfortable truth I'm talking about this morning is the actual person, the being, that the Bible calls Satan. The Bible everywhere from beginning to end, Jenny read it for us out of Genesis chapter 3, the Bible teaches us that there is a, per, there is a personal, supernatural, evil being. That he really does exist. That his name is Satan. That he is tremendously powerful. He's not as powerful as God though he wants you to think that he is. <coughs> he is at every turn opposed to God. He is at every turn opposed to God's people. The Bible tells us that he is the deceiver, that he is the father of lies, 
and that he is the accuser of the faithful. So this is Satan's game. Satan's game is to come to you and to make you doubt God, to make you disobey God. And then when you do, Satan immediately runs to God and says, huh, see, look at what Carrie just did. Look at what it is that Lila just did. That's Satan's game. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. And he accuses the, the faithful. He accuses God's people once he's led them astray. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning, and it's a fairly simple one. Uh, do you believe in Satan? Do you believe what the Bible teaches us about this personal, supernatural, evil being? The reason I ask the question is, uh, every two years there's a, a wonderful gathering of uh, college students. It's called the Urbana Conference. It's for those who are, uh, have a real interest either in missions or in vocational Christian ministry. And over the past several years, the organizers of the Urbana Conference have given access to folks like the Barna Group and the Pew Charitable Trust, because what they like to do is they do surveys with these Christian young men and young women. They're all like 18 to 25. They're, not, uh, they're all very committed and serious about their faith. And they ask them a series of questions. So a question for you, uh, not this most recent Urbana conference, but the one before that, uh, out of the uh, participants who were surveyed and asked, do you believe in an actual Satan? Do you know how many of evangelical young people actually believed that Satan exists? 43%. You're saying, well, pastor, that's young people. I mean, they're, 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 they can't, they're, they're just, they're hopeless. Well, I got news for you. According to the Barna Research Group, when evangelical Christians across all age groups were surveyed, only 52% of evangelical Christians believe that there is a being whose name is Satan, that he is personal, supernatural, and evil. In C.S. Lewis's marvelous little book, The Screwtape Letters, one of the advice that the senior demon gives to his young cousin is the great ploy that you want to try to. I mean, once, you're, once your client has become a Christian, the next thing you need to try then is this. All hope is not lost. You just need to convince him that you don't exist. That we don't exist. Now, I'm not particularly surprised that the majority of evangelical Christians don't believe that there is a Satan because the vast majority of American evangelical Christianity doesn't tell us about our need for a Savior. It tells us about our need for help. That if the goal of all this is to help you have your best life now, well, I want to make you feel empowered to that end. I don't want you to feel like there is this personal, supernatural, evil being who hates you and longs for your destruction. Because if I did that, then you would know that you need a savior. And you do. And so do I. Secondly, we need to find the pressure points. We need to find the pressure points. 
It's interesting, as you read scholars on the temptation of Jesus, some will say, well, what's going on here is just unique to Jesus. And so we can marvel at it. We can learn a little bit from it, but it's really just unique to Jesus. I don't think they're right. We need to remember that Jesus in his humanity is just like us. And that's driven home for us in verse 2 when we're told in probably the greatest understatement in the entire Bible that Jesus, having eaten nothing for 40 days, was hungry. Jesus has a very real, very human need. He's hungry. He needs bread. And so at that point in verse 3, the devil comes to him and says, If you are who you claim to be, command this stone to become bread. So what is it that Satan is doing? Is he questioning Jesus' identity? I don't think that he is. I think what's going on is he's questioning whether or not Jesus is going to trust his Father to provide for him at a point of need. So what is then a temptation for Jesus? It's not just a temptation for Jesus. It's a temptation for all of us. Will we trust our Heavenly Father? Or will we trust our own ability to provide at a point of need? Now, let's be clear. The Bible is very forthcoming that everything we think we need, we don't actually need. There is a difference between our wants and our needs. And I think one of the tasks of Christian parents is to help our kids understand that everything they want is not necessarily a need. Well, friends, God is not just a good father. God is a perfect father. God never withholds from us anything that we need, but he will withhold from us things that we want. And we forget that. And when we forget that, and when we doubt God's ability to provide that which we need, we fall prey to the temptation that Jesus responded to rightly with Scripture. Jesus reminds us that my need, verse 4, is not the only thing that drives my life. I don't live merely based upon my needs, my identity as a human being, my identity as a person formed in the image of God is greater than the things that I need. And it's certainly greater than the things that I want. Now, I think just immediately we see the great conflict then between the society in which we live and what the Bible is teaching us. The society in which we live tells us, no, I am defined by my wants. I am defined by the things that I need. I am, after all, a consumer. That's why I'm here. That's the great purpose of my life. And Jesus reminds us, no, there is more to your life as a human being than merely your wants or your needs. Several years ago, uh, my preaching professor was doing a, a, a pastor's workshop, and so I went with another friend of mine to go hear him. Uh, the man that taught me to preach is African-American, 
And you may be thinking, really? Because you don't preach like that. And I don't because I heard a guy who did it really well and realized I could never do that. So I should probably just be me and not try to be a cheap copy of Robert Smith. And Robert was speaking to pastors and he was seeking to encourage pastors. He was seeking to encourage pastors when the road was rough and ministry was hard. And he had this kind of, and only Robert can do it this way. Robert would have this conversation with himself and he would move from here and then he'd move over to here and he'd change the voices and it was great. And he'd say, well, yeah, but Dr. Smith, if I do this, the folk are going to fire me and then I won't be able to eat. His answer, fool, who do you think is feeding you now? Dr. Smith, if I do this, they're going to fire me and I won't get paid. Preacher, who do you think is paying you now? Do we trust that our Heavenly Father will provide for us? Or do we buy the lie that Adam and Eve bought that God can't be trusted and God doesn't need to be obeyed? Second, the second pressure point that's going on here is this question of power. Now, please note when Satan says to Jesus, when he says, makes him this deal and says in verse six, to you, I will give all this authority in their glory for it's been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Understand right from the get go, he's lying. He can't. He doesn't have that kind of authority. And the world that God created does not glorify Satan. It glorifies its creator. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. They don't declare the glory of Satan. And so Satan is lying straight out. But there are times, aren't there, in which it does feel like it's not my father's world. Rather, it's Satan who's running the show. Several years ago, there was a, a very interesting article in First Things talking about the, the proliferation of pornography in our culture. And the writer began the article by saying, most days it feels like it's Hugh Hefner's world and we're just living in it. And it can feel that way, can it? When we look around and we see what's going on in our world, when we look around and we see what's happening in our culture, it's natural for us to ask the question, who's really in control here? Because it doesn't feel like, it doesn't look like God who claims to be sovereign is actually really in control. It feels like the inmates are running the asylum. It feels like X is in control and we're just living in their world. Well, friends, that's certainly a question the early church had to wrestle with. After all, Luke is writing to a group of people who are told at every turn that the most basic confession they need to make is Caesar as Curios. Caesar is Lord. And the early church would respond with, no, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. Well, how would the American church respond? How would you 
respond. See, friends, when we doubt that our Heavenly Father is in power and we feel like there's a vacuum, well, nature abhors a vacuum. And so what we do is we tend to create our own Savior because we're trying to keep what little power we think we have. But let's understand, there's something deeper going on here. This isn't just about power. Uh, This is a temptation in one sense. The scholars are right. This is unique to Jesus. Because what's going on here is Satan is offering Christ what is his, but he's offering it to him without the cross. See, Jesus doesn't have to spread his arms and be crucified in order to receive the kingdoms of the world. All he has to do is bow the knee to Satan. No Gethsemane. No passion. No crucifixion. Jesus, you can have everything that's already yours. But you don't have to go through cross will jesus trust his heavenly father will he be obedient to the will of the father or will he relinquish the father's command and control of his life and instead give in to a shortcut the shortcut that satan is offering him thirdly then the third Pressure point is that of protection. Satan changes tack. He realizes that just the bold-faced, God-can't-be-trusted stuff isn't working. So now he's going to do something that he's very good at. Uh, He's going to take the word of God and he's going to twist it. And he's going to twist it in that he's going to take a couple of the Psalms and he's going to say, hey, uh, Jesus, if you, you should really do this because this is what the word of God says about how God is going to protect his people. Uh, And after all, are you sure that God is really watching over you? Are you sure that God cares? And if God cares, are you sure he's powerful enough to bring about the things that he's promised? Now, Jesus responds, obviously, rightly in verse 12, don't put the Lord your God to the test. But there are times, aren't there, in which, boy, especially as parents, we struggle with this protection piece. Yes, I know that God is sovereign. Yes, I know that my children are the people I love. Yes, I know they're in God's care. But man, God might just need my help a little bit. Furthermore, I look at Jesus and I look at the cross and I look at the lives of the apostles. I look at the lives of folks within the early church. And if I'm honest, I go, man, God, if that's your protecting them, I'd hate to see what it looks like when you give them over. I prefer my children alive. I would prefer them producing grandchildren and I would prefer them visiting their mother and I on a fairly regular basis. But to think of them burned at the stake or crucified 
or in some way giving their life for the sake of the gospel, at that point I go, God, are you, are you, are you sure? Are you sure you're up to protecting the people that I love and that I care for? Well, friends, we need to understand that God's promise of protection is not just in this life. It's for the life that is to come. I, I shared this with you several years ago. A, a college, uh, a, f- a friend of mine from college, she, she got married. She went back to Michigan. Uh, a, a fellow friend of ours was actually her pastor. She was the minister of music at the church that he was pastoring. And uh, in her mid-40s, found out that she had cancer. She had uh, three young children, she and her husband. And so they, you know, they did the things we do now. You go on social media and you start the caring bridge stuff. And all those things are wonderful. It was great to be able to know what was going on and to be able to pray with Dana and with her family. Uh, and then in the end, uh, she died of her cancer. And my friend, the opening words of her funeral said this, uh, folks at what, in the name of the church, we have been praying for God to heal our sister Dana, and you need to know this morning that he has. He has. God's protection is about more than our physical, mental, and emotional well-being in this life. God's protection is about forever, And ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. And friends, that is such a hard lesson to learn. When Amy's mom died, the hardest thing to do was to say, Lord, I trust you with this person that I love. So do we. Do we hold, do we trust in our Heavenly Father's ability to protect us and the people that we love? Or do we not? Do we doubt? Do we give in to the lie of Satan that God cannot be trusted? Therefore, he does not need to be obeyed. So what? Third point, so what? Well, how about if we know the word? It's interesting, isn't it, that when Satan comes to Jesus and he makes these three very appealing, very powerful temptations, Jesus' response is not to argue with him. Jesus' response is not to sit down and say, hey, Uh, I think you have a bit of a God complex. Let's talk about how you were brought up because I think you have some mother or some father issues, right? He doesn't try to sit down with him and sort of deconstruct him or or give him some sort of uh, therapy. No, Jesus' response to Satan is to give him the word of God. But the interesting thing about the Bible is the Bible will only really do you any good if you actually read it and know it. It's funny that way. How often are we tempted? How often do we succumb to certain temptations because we're just ignorant of God's word? 
It's really easy, isn't it, to think when we hear about the death of a brother or sister in Christ to go, man, God, what were you doing? Why? I, I thought you were going to protect them. I thought you had the power to heal them. God, I thought you were the one who's supposed to provide for us. When all along the Bible paints us a picture of God that lets us know none of those expectations have anything to do with anything that he's promised. We have to know the word. The greatest compliment we can be given as Christians is that we are people of the book. We read it. We love it. We know it. And we have the kind of command of the word that when we are tempted, it comes to mind. We also then need to be trusted, or we need to trust Jesus, excuse me. We need to trust Jesus. Friends, if Jesus can trust his heavenly father for his provision, his power, and his protection, then shouldn't we be able to as well? If Jesus can trust that his heavenly father is going to resurrect him from the dead, then can't we trust our own resurrection to God the Father? Can't we trust the resurrection and the, the eternal life of those we love? Can't we trust them to God as well? See, trusting Jesus doesn't just mean Jesus is my get-out-of-hell-free card. And it doesn't just mean that Jesus is this really great example. It means that we understand Jesus has actually objectively succeeded where everybody else has failed. Jesus will, is, is a Savior. He's a Savior who will not let you down. He will not fail because only Jesus has succeeded where everybody else has failed. And we understand then that as we're about to celebrate in just a few moments, that we understand that when Jesus' body was broken and Jesus' blood was shed, it wasn't for, to atone for his own sin. No, it was to atone for your sin and for my sin. That Jesus is indeed the Savior, because, yes, because he's sinless, but Jesus is the Savior also because Jesus is the sacrifice. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And the table then, as we come to it, we need to remember, this isn't just about like stale Rotella's bread and some four-buck chuck. No, this table is pointing us to the life that is to come. This table is pointing us to the greatest feast in the history of the cosmos, in which those who have put their trust, put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are going to be united with God the Father. They're going to be united with all of God's people. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we will see and we will sing and we will know of God's provision and God's power and God's protection. Let's pray. Father, we bless you this morning for your word and we bless you for Jesus. 
Thank you for his obedience. His obedience, not merely to say no to Satan's temptations, but Father, his obedience even to the point of death on a cross. So we thank you this morning for one who is mighty to save. We pray these things now in his name. Amen. Thank you.